Hello, my name is Moriarty, and this is part 12 of my deep dive into the history of video games. 2015, PC gaming roared back to life, generating a staggering $32 billion in sales, while mobile games followed closely behind with a cool $25 billion. Digital sales skyrocketed, not only surpassing the billion-dollar mark, but reaching an impressive $4 billion. The top-selling games are all now on PC and mobile platforms, signaling a shift in gamers' preferences. This shift towards mobile gaming sent shockwaves throughout the industry, with companies adapting and evolving to stake their claim in this booming market. Sony sold Sony Online Entertainment, Sega continued to scale back its Western business, and Nintendo announced a partnership with mobile game developer DNA, hinting at a mobile-focused future that was seemingly cemented when they announced a mobile form factor console. The industry had grown so vast that many developers celebrated 20-year milestones, while others faced mergers, shutdown, and acquisitions too numerous to list in this video. Sometime around 2015, people start to realize that there's a significant retro gaming movement happening as well. No one's really sure when it started, but suddenly gamers are very, very interested in 20- or 30-year-old classic games. The prices of them start to go up. Game collecting is becoming serious business, and some games are selling for very, very high prices. Virtual reality emerged as the next frontier for gaming, with companies like Oculus and PlayStation investing billions into development and Steam announcing its Steam VR platform and rumored high-end headset. With the industry buzzing about the potential of VR, gamers eagerly awaited the arrival of immersive, boundary-pushing experiences that would redefine what it means to play a game. Everyone is quietly confident that VR won't be a replay of the Kinect and PlayStation Move. It wasn't just about the games themselves, but also the merchandise that came along with them. Funko Pop, a company known for creating pop culture collectibles, started releasing their products this year. These collectibles quickly gained popularity with their stylized designs and wide range of characters from various franchises. Expensive franchises, like Star Wars, Marvel, and Harry Potter. In the midst of all of this, a bizarre development in the film Pixels. Qbert, a character from the classic arcade game, was revealed to be a gendered sexual being that could have viable children with humans, which is now canon, so thanks for that, Sony Pictures and Adam Sandler. Controversies like review bombing captured headlines as Titan Souls and Skyrim faced waves of negative reviews due to various disputes. This phenomenon highlighted the growing power of online communities and the potential for coordinated efforts to shape public opinion and influence the success of a game. Speaking of which, don't forget to hit the like button and share this video somewhere on Discord, Facebook, or Reddit. How has the resurgence of PC gaming influenced game design and distribution? What lessons can we learn from the mobile gaming boom and the challenges faced by companies like Sony, Sega, and Nintendo? When discussing the Legend of Zelda series, it's all too easy to let Ocarina of Time steal the limelight. Yet what immediately followed that epic was not just a sequel, but a thematic revolution that echoes through time. Majora's Mask The arrival of Majora's Mask on the 3DS wasn't merely an exercise in high-definition resurfacing. It was an event that recaptured the collective imagination. This reimagined classic with its updated graphics and fine-tuned gameplay reminded us all why Majora's Mask had held its ground in the gaming canon. Gamers who had never played the original found themselves enraptured by its depth and innovative mechanics, while veterans returned to experience the magic anew, as if meeting an old friend but seeing them with fresh eyes. What amplified this resurgence was Nintendo's strategic move to offer the original Majora's Mask on the Virtual Console for just 150 coins. It was a bold maneuver, putting this iconic game right at the fingertips of a generation that may have have missed its original release. This wasn't merely smart marketing, it was a democratic act that suddenly thrust Majora's Mask back into the zeitgeist. With this move, Nintendo opened the floodgates for conversations around the game's themes, mechanics, and storytelling. 
gamers were not just reminiscing, they were rediscovering and importantly, re-evaluating. In a year that saw the likes of titles pushing narrative and ethical boundaries, Majora's Mask became a sort of compass, a reference point to gauge how far we had come and what core principles remained as poignant as ever. We often hear that games allow us to escape to new worlds, but Majora's Mask confronted players with the heavy burden of an impending apocalypse. It was a game that didn't merely hint at high stakes, it made the ticking clock a core gameplay mechanic. As you played through it, the game's recurring 72-hour cycle became a pressure cooker. Sure, you could manipulate time to some extent, but the inevitable apocalypse was always looming. While the original Majora's Mask was put together in what can only be described as a miraculous four-month development window, the team who worked on the remastered version spent four years refining and reimagining the game. This isn't mere polishing, it's an odyssey into the very heart of what made Majora's Mask tick. And it paid off, the remastered edition wasn't just a nostalgic trip but an essential experience on its own merits. Its approach to storytelling through environmental cues and player-driven exploration is often lost in the dialogue. It wasn't just a string of quests, it was a narrative labyrinth, begging to be deciphered. Before Dark Souls made environmental storytelling a buzzword, Majora's Mask was offering us tragic mini-narratives in every corner of its world. You had to invest yourself, pay attention, and piece together a puzzle that is Termina and its doomed inhabitants. In an industry where player empowerment often reigned supreme, Majora's Mask flipped the script and taught us about fragility, about limitations. In a survey I conducted for my game preservation video, this was the title that players overwhelmingly cited as transformative. It wasn't just a game for them, it was a guide on how to grapple with the inevitable, to find meaning in limitation, to confront rather than escape the darker aspects of existence. Many told me that it taught them that while bad things happen, they're not the end. There's a restart, another cycle, another chance to get it right. In a landscape marked by sequels, loot boxes, and perpetual online connectivity, Majora's Mask serves as a counterpoint, a title that finds its enormous depth not in abundance, but in constraints. The Witcher 3 Wild Hunt fundamentally offered the terrain of what we expect from Western RPGs. It didn't just offer a map to explore, it presented a breathing tapestry of folklore, politics, and personal dilemmas that resonated far beyond the screen. This is the kind of world where your choices aren't just dialogue trees, but meaningful interactions that influence political outcomes, character fates, and yes, even the architecture and social fabric of towns and cities. It's a space where ethical ambiguity reigns, echoing the difficult choices that real people face in times of crisis and moral uncertainty. The world of The Witcher 3 wasn't just another landscape to traverse, but an evolving social and political organism. And who could forget Gwent? What initially appeared to be a throwaway minigame turned out to be a surprisingly deep, enjoyable card game that many players spent hours on, separate from the main quest. It was so popular that it spun off into its own standalone game, a testament to the depth and attention to detail even in the most unexpected corners of The Witcher 3's vast world. Yet for all its monumental achievement, one of the defining characteristics of The Witcher 3 is its humility. This is evident in how Sede Project Red approached post-launch support, offering a plethora of free updates and reasonably priced substantial DLCs. It's almost like the studio operated more as fans of the medium than as a corporation looking for profitability, setting a precedent for post-launch support that resonated within the industry, and helps make The Witcher 3 perhaps the greatest Western RPG ever made. Terraria's retail release on the PS4 and Xbox One wasn't merely a repackaging, but a strategic move that brought a game primarily associated with PCs to the living room. The retail release represented a leap for the game, and by extension, the indie genre itself. It's an affirmation of how indie titles had matured to stand alongside console giants. The ripple effect of this can't be underestimated. It signaled the erasure of the false dichotomy 
indicate that indie games were PC-centric experiences while consoles were reserved for blockbuster titles. Terraria on consoles helped blur these boundaries, democratizing game platforms in an unprecedented way. Now, what's truly phenomenal about Terraria is its ability to sustain itself through continuous updates and content expansions. Unlike games that lose their sheen post-launch, Terraria morphed, evolved, and managed to captivate a whole new generation of gamers with its major 1.3 update. The update didn't just add new items or cosmetic changes, it overhauled systems, introduced expert mode, and even revamped the game's animation and sprite designs. By doing so, Terraria demonstrated the vitality of treating a game not as a product, but as an ongoing project, an evolving digital organism. This has since led Terraria to become one of the top-selling games, at one point sitting at number 10 best-selling game of all time. While Terraria was charting its own course, the game's creator also announced Terraria Otherworld. Although the game would eventually be cancelled, the sheer audacity of the announcement revealed a developer not afraid to experiment and expand upon its own mythos, even as the original game continued to grow. And that's an insight into the confidence, risk-taking, and forward-thinking nature of indie game developers of the day. When you put Terraria in the same room with Minecraft, you get an interesting comparative glimpse. While Minecraft became a household name, recognized even by those who never picked up a controller, Terraria operated in a similar design space but with a different focus. Different, but similar enough. Minecraft is so popular at this time that We Have Minecraft at Home becomes a top 10 selling game. When you think about games that have left a mark on both players and the industry, Bloodborne undeniably deserves its place in the spotlight. And with recent gossip in the back rooms, even if I don't spell it out, it's not too far-fetched to think that a broader range of gamers might soon get to experience Yarnum for themselves. Developed by the creators of the Souls series, Bloodborne didn't just settle for being another iteration. It carved out its own identity. One of the critical pivots was its transition from the deliberate, shield-heavy combat of the Soul series to something more aggressive and high-risk. The rally system, where you could regain health by attacking enemies quickly after taking damage, fundamentally altered how players approached combat. This wasn't just an aesthetic change, but a commentary on the evolving expectations for pacing and combat engagement in gaming. Where Dark Souls could be considered a chess match, Bloodborne was a high-speed, fencing duel. It redefined what action RPG combat could look like and set a high bar for player agency. Now, Bloodborne wasn't just a combat simulator. It was a masterfully crafted world with lore so thick you could almost feel it in the air of Yarnum. But what's interesting is how the game used its Lovecraftian-inspired horror not just as window dressing, but as a core gameplay mechanic. The Insight System, a unique and under-discussed feature, perfectly encapsulates this. Earning insight could make the game both easier and harder in paradoxical ways, affecting everything from your resistance to certain effects to how many items you could buy at shops. This Lovecraftian concept of forbidden knowledge, making life both enlightening and miserable, is a gameplay mechanic that is as poetic as it is complex. Bloodborne gave us a lesson in how environmental storytelling could transcend beyond mere visuals or text. Yarnum felt lived in, and the non-linear world design allowed players to uncover its mysteries at their own pace. Environmental elements weren't just obstacles, they were texts to be read, imbued with narrative significance that heightened the game's emotional impact. The concept of a lived-in world wasn't new, but the degree to which Bloodborne committed to it through its meticulous, interconnected design is genuinely remarkable. Putting this into context, when procedural generation was the buzzword and many were looking towards the future, towards games that could be massive, infinite, and ever-changing, Bloodborne swam against this tide, offering a deeply handcrafted experience that had the audacity to say, this world has boundaries, but within them you will find a richness that no algorithm can generate. The sheer depth of experience it offered within its limits was a testament to the power of focused, curated game design.
Rocket League, it's soccer, but with cars. This straightforward concept masked an underbelly of nuanced physics and meticulously designed game mechanics. Psionics had built on their earlier experience with Unreal Tournament 2004, specifically the Onslaught mode. The vehicular combat elements from that era were elegantly repurposed into a soccer-like setting. Anyone familiar with Unreal Tournament could see the genealogy, yet the experience felt novel. Interestingly, Rocket League's successful blend of disparate elements wasn't an overnight success. The game's precursor, supersonic acrobatic rocket-powered battle cars, was a mouthful to say and equally cumbersome to market. So why did Rocket League succeed where its verbose predecessor stumbled? It comes down to understanding your strengths and pivoting when necessary. Psionics realized their original game had a cult following for its core mechanics. People enjoyed the the vehicular mayhem infused with soccer. Building upon this, the developers retained the concept but put a laser focus on polishing every aspect of gameplay and presentation, making it competitive with AAA titles. It's a tale of iterative success, honing in on what worked while cutting out the fluff. Rocket League broke new ground by debuting as a free title on PlayStation Plus. Despite the inherent risks like ballooning server costs, the audacious move almost backfired when the game's free activations reached such staggering numbers that they nearly equaled the total existing PlayStation consoles. Essentially, they were on the brink of saturating their potential market and doing it for free. But this gamble didn't just pay off. It paved the way for a transformative approach to free-to-play success that transcended mobile and MMO formats. This allowed Psionics to break away from contract work, focusing all their energy on a game that was rapidly amassing a dedicated following. Rocket League became an example for an industry teetering on the edge of aggressive monetization. It showed that you could be consumer-friendly and still financially successful. This is particularly intriguing considering the pressure Psionics was under, given that their previous projects hadn't exactly set the world on fire. The game has shown remarkable staying power punctuated by its transition to a free-to-play model even on platforms other than PlayStation. It has woven itself into the very fabric of eSports, becoming a staple that stands shoulder to shoulder with juggernauts like League of Legends and Counter-Strike. When the word Halo is mentioned, many recall epic battles, iconic characters, and masterfully crafted narratives. The series under Bungie's tenure had set a gold standard. By the time Halo 5 was announced, expectations had already been tainted by the memory of Halo 4, which, while a solid game in its own right, lacked some of the distinctive magic Bungie had infused into the series. And then there was the troubled launch of the Master Chief Collection, which left a sour taste in the mouths of fans. The issues that plagued its online functionality, something so fundamental to the Halo experience, made many wary of what was to come. As anticipation built, Halo 5 began to shape up as a potential redeemer. When early gameplay footage and promotional materials were unveiled, it offered the community a glimpse, a beacon of hope that perhaps, just perhaps, the franchise would return to its golden era. And to sweeten the pot, the remastered version of Halo 2 was also announced alongside Halo 5, a nod to a beloved classic. But upon release, it became immediately evident that Halo 5 was a mix bag. Its campaign, a fundamental pillar of the Halo experience, was met with criticism. Instead of the dramatic storytelling, deeply woven lore, and captivating character arcs that players expected, many felt that the plotline failed to captivate in the same way previous titles had. With a fractured narrative and lack of genuine emotional pull, it fell short. While the multiplayer was lauded, its initial offerings were leaner than expected. There was an evident lack of playlists, a belated forge mode, and the pace of updates was sluggish. Even when updates were rolled out, they came riddled with bugs and glitches. The disconnect between the developers and the competitive scene also left pro players disgruntled, with gameplay changes often misaligned with their preferences. The vision of creative director Tim Longo, who favored squad 
squad-based gameplay experiences shines through. The introduction of Blue Team and the establishment of Fireteam Osiris, even after numerous iterations and changes, underscored a desire to give players a narrative that was multifaceted, allowing them to explore the vast Halo universe from different vantage points. But somewhere along the line, this vastness, this ambition, led to a narrative that many felt lacked focus and coherence. If we examine the announcements of Final Fantasy VII Remake, Kingdom Hearts III, The Last Guardian, and Shenmue III, they share a common thread of rekindling nostalgia while offering the promise of innovation. Each of these games had predecessors that were not just products, but events in gaming history, delivering seismic shifts in narrative design, gameplay mechanics, and graphical fidelity. The announcements of these titles wasn't simply about game trailers or developer interviews, they acted as social touchstones, evoking community discussions and speculative debates that lasted for years. The idea of remaking Final Fantasy VII wasn't just about enhanced graphics and gameplay, it tapped into a collective memory of the game's 1997 release, a revolutionary juncture in RPG storytelling and technological capability. Yu Suzuki's return with Shenmue III felt like a knight's quest for redemption. One could could argue that Shenmue's legacy was paradoxical. The series bled money for Sega, but left its name in the sand of gaming history. The third installment not only required overcoming financial challenges, hence the crowdfunding, but it also had to deliver an experience that balanced between vintage charm and modern design sensibilities. Suzuki's venture was essentially about recapturing lost glory and fulfilling an artistic vision. It was his first game since leaving Sega and he faced enormous pressures to align Shenmue 3 with the contemporary gaming ecosystem. Suzuki's attempt to crowdfund the third installment was not just a fundraising effort, it was a referendum on his initial vision. Fallout Shelter offered a lesson in unexpected places, a lawsuit against Warner Brothers for allegedly stealing its game design brought to light the precarious nature of innovation and the vulnerability of intellectual property in the mobile gaming world. The lawsuit wasn't just a legal scuffle, it revealed a harsh landscape where an original game could be dissected into its core mechanics, replicated, and then sold without missing a beat. This was eerily similar to the 3's and 2048 debacle, where a unique and intelligent game was cloned to produce a simpler, more viral experience. Fallout Shelter's predicament underscores how intellectual property can become a battlefield, even in a medium-designed for diversion. Five Nights at Freddy's 4 played an instrumental role in the transformation of indie game marketing, setting an example for using YouTube as a primary distribution channel for visibility. The game was deliberately designed with simple but unpredictable gameplay mechanics that not only contributed to its replayability, but also made it perfect for YouTube's short, bite-sized entertainment format. It essentially exploited YouTube's algorithmic preference for high-engagement videos where every jump scare translated into a spike in viewer retention rates and created a viral loop between creators and consumers that fed on itself, setting a gold standard for how indie developers could leverage social media platforms for both notoriety and profit. The game demonstrated how indie titles could create visibility, community, and monetization through alignment with a prominent social media platform. And while we're examining the intersection between YouTube and gaming, who could ignore PewDiePie? PewDiePie Legend of the Brofist provided insights into the growing intersection of YouTube influencers and game development. It's tempting to dismiss this as a simple commercial venture, but there's a deeper undercurrent. This mobile game, which became the top grossing game in the United States just two hours after release, showed that a YouTuber's influence could not only be expansive, but also commercially quantifiable. It showed that the connection between influencer and audience had matured to a point where an entirely different form of content could be successfully monetized. The boundary between viewer and player blurred as fans of PewDiePie could now engage with his brand on a more interactive, immersive way. The game exemplified how an influencer's brand could be extended to other platforms in a way that feels organic to the audience. Life is Strange, meanwhile, was a time-traveling odyssey that was 
was less about manipulating time and more about the emotional gravitas of choices in a volatile world. The game defied the typical protagonist mold, giving players a lens into the experience of Max Caulfield, a teenager with a complicated life and a time-bending ability. The game tackled heavy themes like friendship, adolescence, and moral dilemmas, all from the perspective of a teenage girl, a far cry from the industry's often one-dimensional protagonists. Max Caulfield's time-rewinding ability wasn't merely a cool game mechanic, it was intrinsically tied to the narrative, creating moments where the player had to think deeply about the moral implications of their choices. In 2016, the gaming landscape was truly transformed with the arrival of VR headsets like the Vive. Mid-generation refreshes such as the PS4 Pro, PS4 Slim, and the Xbox One S, and the explosive popularity of augmented reality games like Pokemon Go. While VR struggled to find its footing, AR became the industry's golden child, with Pokemon Go raking in what seemed like infinite cash. Mobile gaming soared to new heights, reaching $41 billion in revenues and surpassing PC gaming. To put that into perspective, mobile gaming revenue in 2016 was four times the size of the entire video game industry just a decade earlier in 2006. Digital sales continued to dominate, accounting for 75 4% of all video game software sales. Tencent, a Chinese multinational conglomerate, flexed its muscles with six of the top 10 best-selling games, generating an impressive $8 billion in revenue all on its own. Meanwhile, Activision acquired Major League Gaming and announced its esports title Overwatch and the Overwatch League further showcasing the industry's expansion into new territories. No Man's Sky, a game that promised an expansive universe for players to explore, was a commercial success, becoming the best-selling release on the PlayStation Store in its launch month. However, the game's launch was not without controversy. It's so vast, it's so boundless, it's actually infinite. Almost anything's possible. Here we're at the boundary between two warring factions. I could join in, I could take sides. People go out, they can find resources, create products, and they can sell them at trading posts or at space stations. And everything just works. Can you land on a comet? Yeah, at the moment you can land on asteroids. Do the animals eat each other? Yeah, they do. And then as you travel further towards the center of the galaxy, uh, things become much more mutated, and the crazier things are, are exist there. Do we ever get to see ourselves? Uh, no, you don't see yourself, so the only way for you to know what you look like is for somebody else to, you know, to see you. Can you run into other people, other players on the game? Yes. The brilliant marketing campaign was met with a ruinous initial reception from vocal online fans. Accusations of the developer operating in bad faith when discussing the game's online features were rampant. The silence from Hello Games and Sean Murray, the game's developer, which lasted months, further fueled the discontent among the game's fans. The controversy highlighted the importance of transparency in game development. The game was accused of missing dozens, maybe hundreds of features that were promised, teased, or even confirmed. Sean Murray was accused of making promises about features that didn't make it into the final game, leading to anger and feelings of betrayal from fans. This situation underscored the importance of waiting for reviews and player feedback before purchasing a game, rather than relying solely on pre-release hype. It also serves as a stark reminder of the pitfalls of pre-ordering games, one I'm happy to underline. Do not pre-order games. As the number of gaming conventions became overwhelming, EA decided to branch out, announcing its EA Play event after leaving E3 in 2013. Nintendo had already set a precedent by launching its Nintendo Directs, and it signaled a warning bell to major events like E3 to figure things out or see themselves fade away. Gaming's influence reached the highest levels of society, with Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe donning a Mario hat and emerging from a warp pipe at the 2016 Olympics. A far cry from Bill Clinton's call for regulation and censorship just a few decades prior. How did the emergence of VR, the success of AR, and the ever-expanding world of mobile gaming shape the industry? What impact did these changes have on the way we experience and discuss games today, and how did gaming's newfound cultural acceptance influence its growth and development in the years to come?
Overwatch redefined what it meant to produce profits in the gaming industry. While Mass Effect 3 introduced the concept of loot boxes, Overwatch fine-tuned it to such an extent that the industry couldn't ignore the success. It wasn't merely an optional add-on, it was a money-making juggernaut with over $1 billion generated from loot box sales alone. This phenomenon forced a seismic shift in how developers and publishers viewed profitability. The old metric of judging success by player count suddenly seemed quaint. The focus was now on how much these existing players were willing to spend. In essence, Overwatch didn't just adopt the trend, it became the vanguard for an industry-wide strategy. However, its impact was more nuanced than just turning the industry's gaze towards loot boxes. Overwatch also sparked a different kind of gold rush, the race towards esports viability. Dota 2 and its ilk had shown the world that you could build a cathedral of earnings through competitive play. Now, everyone wanted in. While the Counter-Strike global offensive model emphasized creating a good game that naturally evolved into an eSport, Overwatch arrived fully formed, designed from its core to be a competitive showcase. Here's the catch. Many publishers misunderstood what made eSports tick. The impulse to capitalize on this easy money led to a wave of games constructed around competitive mechanics, but lacking in soul. Gamers are intuitive. They want quality gameplay before a game can even qualify as a sport. It seems that Blizzard did not pay close enough attention to the cautionary tale of its own push to make Heroes of the Storm an esports phenomenon. Despite Blizzard's forceful efforts to position it in the competitive scene, it couldn't match the organic growth and player engagement seen in other titles, reinforcing the notion that successful esports environments are cultivated through authentic community engagement, not merely manufactured. To consider Overwatch as a mere clone of Team Fortress 2 would be an oversimplification, but to regard it as a game that broke entirely new ground would be disingenuous. Overwatch took the class-based, team-oriented gameplay made popular by TF2 and wrapped it in a package that was more accessible for a broader audience. Whether it was the diversely imagined heroes that appealed to a global player base, or the intricate, well-designed maps that took advantage of vertical gameplay mechanics, Overwatch was essentially an evolution rather than a revolution. One aspect that certainly benefited from Overwatch's popularity is the idea of a hero in these types of games. TF2 had its classes, but Overwatch turned these into fully fleshed out characters, each with a backstory, a given name, and a person. Personality. This resonated with players in different ways, allowing them to identify more closely with their chosen hero. This is why you can only have one of each hero on a given team. The personalization created a connection that transcended mere gameplay mechanics and got players invested in the lore of the Overwatch universe, something that TF2 never really aimed for. While Overwatch may not have been revolutionary in the strictest sense, its popularity did throw into high relief the possibilities inherent in team-based class-driven shooters. It proved to developers and players alike that this style of game had staying power and could attract a diverse audience, ensuring that the genre wouldn't stagnate. Because of this, one could argue that Overwatch performed a kind of stewardship for the genre, safeguarding and nourishing its potential and laying the groundwork for future innovations. TF2 might have sown the seeds, but Overwatch helped cultivate the field. Despite its trailblazing success, I should note the perplexing decision by Activision to essentially destabilize Overwatch's competitive scene with the announcement of Overwatch 2. While sequels are hardly new in the gaming world, this move seemed to serve no other purpose than to convert a population of paid players into an ongoing stream of paying players. It's a case study in how not to handle a sequel in a genre that thrives on consistency and balance, and it diluted the focus of a game that had built its brand on being tightly focused and fiercely competitive. Uncharted 4 was, in a sense, the epitome of what a cinematic game should aspire to be. To understand the monumental leap Uncharted 4 took in visual storytelling, it's crucial to look back at the state of the industry at that time. 
Graphics had certainly come a long way since the pixelated 2D sprites of yesteryear, but Uncharted 4 upped the ante. The visual quality wasn't just about high resolution textures or realistic lighting, it was how all these elements came together to serve the story. Locations weren't just backdrops, they were characters in their own right. From the lush jungles of Madagascar to the cramped streets of an Italian auction house, every setting was meticulously crafted to tell a part of Nathan Drake's story. It was as if each environment held the echoes of Drake's journey, a visual language that conveyed mood, tension, and narrative beats. One often overlooked yet significant aspect of the game is its open level design. Unlike its linear predecessors, Uncharted 4 introduced open level segments, such as the one in Madagascar, allowing players to explore in their 4x4, tackle objectives in any order they liked, and even stumble upon optional narrative content. While this might not seem groundbreaking by today's standards, this was Naughty Dog stretching its legs, showing that a linear, narrative-driven game could incorporate sandbox elements without losing its storytelling focus. And this is crucial because it broke the mold of what a cinematic story-driven game had to be like. It gave players the reins, to an extent, of their storytelling experience without diluting the narrative potency Naughty Dog was known for. The emotional narrative, though, remains one of its most compelling attributes. It's not just a treasure-hunting story, it's a narrative about family, sacrifice, and the toll of a life lived on the edge. By incorporating elements of Nathan's past, introducing new characters like his brother Sam, and even taking time to let players explore Nathan's home life, the game added layers to a character we thought we knew so well. And that's an intricate balance to maintain because the Uncharted series was known for its fun-loving, wisecracking adventurer persona. Adding emotional weight to a character like that without making it feel forced required a deft touch. Uncharted 4 managed to introduce mature, resonant themes without stripping Nathan Drake of his essential nature. One of Amplitude's most engaging elements was the multiplicity of tracks. Vocals, guitar, bass, drums, and synth. As a player, you didn't just passively listen to the music, you participated in its construction, activating these layers through rhythmic gameplay. Harmonics set the stage here for something bigger, something that would later be the core gameplay element in their future endeavors like Guitar Hero and Rock Band. The power of the game was not just in listening to a playlist, but in experiencing music music as an interactive medium, a construct that would be increasingly popular in the years that followed. The 2003 original version featured a tracklist from numerous popular artists, the likes of David Bowie and Run DMC among them. This was a game that took the risk of integrating popular music in a manner that wasn't just for listening, but also for player engagement. It subtly brought the concert experience to the living room, offering a broader audience a chance to feel like rock stars. At the time, it was a visionary move that represented a new way of thinking about video game soundtracks not just as mere background noise, but as a core element of the gameplay. The reboot arrived at a time when the gaming community was looking back fondly at the games that had defined earlier eras. However, what stood out about Amplitude's 2016 iteration was how it wasn't merely a nostalgia play, it was a reimagination. By bringing in modern tracks and updated visuals, the reboot served as a bridge between generations of gamers, combining the old with the new and capitalizing on technological advancements. This reflects a wider trend in the industry at the time. Time, one that saw the marriage of new technologies with classic, enduring gameplay mechanics. This interplay demonstrated that nostalgia didn't have to be a retread, could also serve as a vehicle for innovation. It's impossible to talk about Amplitude without recognizing the challenges it faced. It was a critical darling, but failed to become a commercial success. Even the reboot was a result of a successful Kickstarter campaign, indicating a mismatch between critical acclaim and market volume. Viability. Amplitude, like many groundbreaking titles, found a passionate but niche audience. Despite its critical successes and the demand for a reboot, its commercial performance was a lesson in the market challenges innovative games often face. It's a poignant part of the narrative around gaming as both an art form and a business, a reminder that a claim doesn't always translate to financial success. 
The remarkable thing about Undertale is that it lets you resolve conflicts through nonviolent means. In an era where the spectacle of visuals and the thrill of combat often overshadowed narrative and choice, Undertale shifted focus. Combat encounters could be manipulated in such a way that allowed for peaceful resolutions. You could talk your way out of a fight, offer a compliment, or even engage in a jokey interaction. This approach resonated with players weary of hack-and-slash dynamics and those looking for a different type of challenge, a moral or ethical one. And the shift in focus wasn't trivial, it was a pointed critique of a genre that often emphasizes combat as the primary or even sole method of interaction. Now, Undertale's non-violent path wasn't just a narrative alternative, but also a mechanical one, forcing players to understand the unique personalities of each enemy to spare them effectively. Your interaction with the game's codes and mechanics, as well as your emotional investment in the characters, becomes far more complex. This blurring of lines between game mechanics and narrative content became an example for many games that followed, whether consciously inspired by Undertale or not. It is established that story elements could be deeply integrated into gameplay mechanics in a meaningful way, allowing for a richer, more nuanced gaming experience. A rarely acknowledged but critical aspect of Undertale's design is its meta-commentary on player agency and the act of playing a video game itself. This game records your choices, even after you've restarted, offering you new dialogue and altering the experience based on your previous actions. This serves as an implicit commentary on the linearity and artificiality of many video games that allow you to simply restart and choose differently with no consequences. In doing so, Undertale directly engaged with the concept of safe scumming and replaying games to get the quote, best ending turning these mechanics into both a narrative and moral choice for the player. The retro aesthetic of Undertale is not just a stylistic choice, but a strategic one that subverted the notion that cutting-edge graphics are integral to a game's success. Here lies the evidence that contradicts the graphical arms race we've seen in the past two decades. Undertale leverages its 8-bit aesthetic not as a crutch, but as a method for storytelling, even integrating it into the plot. The game took us back to appreciate the minimalist art of yesteryears, revealing that storytelling and gameplay innovation could stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with visual spectacle. The game's success during a period marked by a retro revival in gaming serves as a testament to this, as more indie developers started to adopt retro aesthetics not for lack of resources, but as a deliberate artistic and narrative choice. Eric Barone toiled away for four years in his girlfriend's apartment to bring Stardew Valley to life. That apartment became an incubator for what would become a massive hit, drawing upon the classic allure of Harvest Moon, but adding layers of complexity and freedom seldom seen before. His relationship with his girlfriend, Amber, was a sustaining force. In interviews, Barone often credits her for supporting him emotionally and financially during this period. So we're not just talking about a solo developer, but a collaborative environment that fostered ingenuity. Amber wasn't directly involved in development, but she was a part of the ecosystem that enabled this game to bloom. That's something aspiring developers should note, the ecosystem around you. Be it supportive relationships or a conducive work environment can be just as crucial as your skills and ideas. Stardew has a meticulous attention to detail concerning the in-game economy. You have your traditional farming, fishing, and mining, sure, but the game also includes an evolving price system, seasonal considerations, and even fluctuating demand. This is an intricately balanced web that changes over time and interacts in subtle ways, requiring a level of engagement that goes beyond merely planting crops and selling them for a profit. Here, Barone achieves a complex interplay between simple actions and their downstream consequences, a dynamic that mirrors real-world economic systems but does so in a way that's graspable and enjoyable. The game presents a tapestry of characters, each with their story arcs, personalities, and problems. Romancing these characters isn't just about giving them a gift they like. It involves engaging in a set of interactions, learning their histories, and sometimes even helping them through personal dilemmas. The game thrives on its community and relationships, making the world feel lived in and evolving. 
Many AAA titles could take a leaf out of Stardew Valley's book on how to make NPCs that feel less like set pieces and more like integral elements of the gaming world. And where multi-platform releases were becoming more common, Stardew Valley also managed to extend its reach further than most indie titles. It started off on Windows, but then steadily expanded its footprints across all major platforms, including consoles and mobile devices. It's not just that it went multi-platform, it's how seamlessly it did so. The game adapted well to different control schemes and screen sizes, something that even AAA titles struggle with. This adaptability meant that Stardew Valley was more accessible, thus further broadening its appeal. After Firewatch, not only did we see a proliferation of indie titles coming into their own, but the industry also had to grapple with existential questions, such as what constitutes a real game? This first-person adventure game takes you to the Wyoming wilderness, where you assume the role of a fire lookout named Henry. While the gameplay mechanics are simple, mostly walking and interacting, the depth of the narrative and the character development is astonishing. As you immerse yourself in the stunning visual landscape, the game crafts an emotional connection that is atypical for what many consider to be a walking simulator. Firewatch inadvertently ends up being a significant lightning rod in the conversation about these so-called walking simulators. Detractors argue that they don't have enough interactive elements to be considered real games, but Firewatch, like its peers, challenges that. The game doesn't just tell a story, it engages you in decision-making, impacting the unfolding narrative and your relationship with other characters in the game. The nature of this interaction adds a layer of complexity that transcends the simplistic mechanics and asks us to reconsider what meaningful engagement in a video game looks like. While Firewatch was seminal for many positive reasons, it was also the epicenter of a rather troubling incident involving free speech and fair use rights. Campo Santo, the developer, issued a DMCA takedown against PewDiePie, a popular YouTube streamer, for using a racial slur during a live stream, but not while playing Firewatch. For those unacquainted, fair use is a legal doctrine that permits limited use of copyrighted material without permission from the rights holder for purposes such as criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, and research. In this case, Campo Santo's DMCA takedown sets a dangerous precedent. The action called into question the extent to which developers can or should be able to control the contexts in which their games appear, extending beyond legal boundaries into ethical and even philosophical realms. The chilling effect of such a DMCA claim on creators cannot be understated. The incident potentially endangers the symbiotic relationship between video game developers and creators, who mutually benefit from the exposure and engagement that these streaming sessions offer. This move by Campo Santo should be critically examined for its implications on not just gamers, but creators across different media. Freedom of speech in the creative process is not something to be compromised lightly, and while there's an argument for ethical conduct, the manner in which this was executed leaves much to be desired. The story of Campo Santo doesn't end with Firewatch or the controversies it spawned. In a twist befitting of a video game plot, the company was eventually acquired by Valve, the video game giant. This acquisition can be viewed as a testament to the groundbreaking work Campo Santo accomplished, also as a foreshadowing of the corporate consolidations that were yet to come in the indie space. This isn't just a Firewatch story, it's an industry story. Inside, developed by Play Dead, the creators behind Limbo captured the zeitgeist of the gaming landscape in several unique ways. This game has often been compared to its predecessor, Limbo, but what sets it apart is its conceptual grandiosity. While Limbo explored the stark brutality of a monochromatic world, Inside leverages a more nuanced color palette, heightened graphical fidelity, and layered audio design to create a different kind of immersion. What's intriguing is how Inside managed to mirror and advance its predecessor, Limbo, in every conceivable aspect, from its arresting visual language to its haunting, minimalistic soundscape. It creates a wordless narrative that's both enthralling and unnerving. The most intriguing element is how the game manages to build this dystopian world without uttering a single word. It's a lesson in how video games can create a visceral experience that goes beyond just adrenaline-pumping action. 
action. It's an exercise in storytelling, where the narrative is pieced together from environmental cues rather than exposition. The game doesn't simply tell you to be afraid or anxious, it crafts an environment that naturally elicits these emotional responses. It's all about the interplay between the visual, the audible, and the interactive, transcending what many people would call simple gameplay mechanics to tell a story that's anything but simplistic. Hitman in 2016 stands out as a unique case study in how not to handle episodic game content. Initially, when Square Enix released it as an episodic game, they inadvertently made the title a referendum on episodic gaming itself. Its subsequent lack of success became the metaphorical stick used to beat any argument supporting the episodic model. Square Enix, despite possessing franchises like Hitman, Deus Ex, Tomb Raider, and Sleeping Dogs, has often mismanaged them. The episodic nature of Hitman did not work for Square, leading Square to allow developers IO Interactive to buy themselves out. What happened next is a fascinating reversal of fortunes. IO Interactive rebounded to create a highly profitable trilogy, also incorporating the most robust form of backward compatibility we've ever seen, allowing previous missions to be played with new mechanics. They didn't just regain their IP, they rejuvenated it. In a sense, the journey of Hitman serves as a bellwether for how corporate strategy and executive decisions can potentially stifle creativity and innovation. When IO Interactive took over, they proved that the problem wasn't with the episodic nature per se, but with how it was implemented and marketed. This development underlines a harsh truth about Square Enix. Despite their prowess in the Japanese gaming market, their stewardship of Western IPs often leaves a lot to be desired. Square's approach was overly risk-adverse, painting each of their Western franchises as underperforming. It's a stark juxtaposition to their Japanese-focused games, which by comparison may not have fared as well, but are touted as successes. This is the conundrum of Square's marketing strategy, and a noteworthy point of reflection on how different cultural contexts within the same company can lead to disparate outcomes. Moving on to Disney Infinity and Skylanders, they exemplify the risks and downfalls of over-commercialization. These games didn't just represent a fad, they were the culmination of a decade-long push to integrate physical merchandise with interactive media. These franchises brought physical toys into the gaming space, a unique bridge between two different forms of play. While their initial entry into the market showed promise, the requirement for an ever-expanding collection of toys became burdensome for consumers. Over time, this blend of physical and digital began to wane. Even Nintendo's Amiibos, which benefited from a massive, pre-existing fanbase, couldn't escape the pitfalls of this model entirely. Fast forward to today, every gamer's shelf is populated with cheap plastic characters, relics from an era when game companies believed this, this was the path to profitability. Yet the cautionary tale told by Disney Infinity and Skylanders about excessive consumerism in gaming still looms large, as we see limited print companies essentially tapping into the same psychology, albeit in a slightly modified form. Tokyo Mirage Session Sharp FE became infamous, not just for its gameplay, but for the meme-worthy Vagina Bones controversy, which pointed to the localization changes deemed necessary to suit Western sensitivities. This case serves as a crucial point in the discussion about video game censorship and localization. While cultural sensitivity is crucial, what happens when the pendulum swings too far? It impacts not just sales, but also the global perception of a game that that perhaps deserved a different kind of attention. Tokyo Mirage encapsulates the challenges of global game distribution and the complications arising from diverse cultural mores. Thank you for joining me on this journey through history. If you've enjoyed today's episode, there's even more to discover in the next installment. Make sure to download the next episode to continue unraveling the past. If you haven't already, please consider leaving me a five-star review and sharing with your friends and family, but feel free not to. A special thank you to my Patreon patrons who allowed me to make this. Together, we can keep the threads of gaming history alive. I'll see you on the next one.